Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles. Ivan III of Russia, Novgorod, and the Russo-Lithuanian Wars, fifteen hundred to fifteen o three. Today, power in Russia is so centralized in Moscow that it can be difficult to imagine otherwise. Yet in the Middle Ages, Moscow was just one of several centres of power. In fact, its first appearance in historical documents is as late as 1147, more than a century and a half after the conversion of Prince Vladimir the Great to the Orthodox religion, which marked the beginning of the unification of the lands of the Rus. From the 1200s, the princes of Moscow gained in strength, but by the mid-1400s, Muscovy was still one of several independent Rus principalities, which had the potential for expansion. The Grand Prince of Tver, just to the west of Muscovy, was nominally a vassal of the Muscovite Grand Prince, yet he enjoyed a good degree of independence. Novgorod, further to the west of Tver, was a prosperous merchant republic that controlled vast lands to the north and northeast, all the way to the White Sea and the coast of the Arctic Ocean. Ryazan, to the southeast of Moscow, on the other side of the Oka River, still retained its sovereignty and four other smaller principalities, Yaroslav, Rostov, Vyatka and Peskov, managed to maintain some independence from their larger neighbours. The Muscovite Grand Princes claimed political and military leadership in north-east Russia, using as propaganda the Battle of Kudakova of 1389, when their predecessor, Dmitry Donskoy, successfully repelled a major Tatar invasion, as described in a previous podcast. The revolt against the Tatars did not directly challenge the suzerainty of the Golden Horde, yet it helped implant the image that someday Russia would be free of the Tatar yoke. As Robert O'Cromney puts in his book, The Formation of Muscovy, 1304-1613, Moscow was the first among near equals, but there was no guarantee that the gains of the Muscovite princes could not be reversed. They possessed no standing army and so were dependent on their relatives and vassal princes to raise military forces. In the late 1300s and early 1400s, a number of Russian towns challenged Moscow's hegemony. The city of Tver flourished and its princes conducted their own foreign policy. Also, Novgorod steered its own course by balancing the competing pressures of Moscow and Lithuania, its neighbour to the west. 
As an example, when the city was threatened by a Mongol invasion in the 1380s, his leaders, unable to depend on the military support of the Grand Prince of Moscow, called in princes from Lithuania. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania expanded rapidly in the 1300s, so that by the end of the century its territory stretched all the way from the Baltic down to the Black Sea. Its rulers had taken advantage of the declining influence of the Mongols in the region around modern-day western Ukraine and Belarus. In 1386, Lithuania joined the Dynastic Union with the neighbouring Kingdom of Poland, and its leaders converted officially from paganism to Catholicism. Still, the Orthodox Christians who lived in the south and east of the duchy and made up the majority of the population were free to continue worshipping as before. The most famous Lithuanian Grand Prince was Vitautas the Great, who ruled from 1392 to 1430. At the height of his power, Vitautas aspired to leadership of all the Russian lands. In 1406, he invaded Peskov, a prosperous trading town between Lithuania and Novgorod, which today lies in Russia, just 20 kilometres from the Estonian border. Grand Prince Vasily I of Moscow sent troops to defend Peskov, leading to a fitful border war until 1408. Before long, though, the two rulers turned their attention to more pressing matters, Vasily to Mongol incursions, and Vitautas joined forces with King Jagiello of Poland against the Teutonic Knights at the Battle of Grunwald, 1410, also as described in a previous podcast. Thereafter, for a period, relations between Lithuania and Moscow resumed a more peaceful course. The ambitions of Grand Duke Casimir of Lithuania reigned 1440 to 1492, and who was also King of Poland from 1447, were frequently diverted towards the Teutonic Knights. And in the middle third of the 15th century, Muscovy was in a state of relative weakness during the reign of Grand Prince Vasily II, reigned 1425 to 1462. Almost immediately after Vasily ascended to the throne at the age of just ten, his uncle staked his own claim to the throne, leading to a protracted civil war. Vasily survived imprisonment by the Mongols and being blinded by his nephew Shemyaka to eventually affirm control of Moscow in 1446. Through years of adversity, he showed great leadership skills, in time persuading the majority of the Moscow court nobles, the ecclesiastical hierarchy and the Prince of Tver to throw their support behind him. Shemyaka, once defeated, sought refuge in Novgorod, where he died in 1453, it is suspected poisoned by someone in Vasily's service. In 1456, as revenge for harbouring his nephew, Vasily led a sizeable military expedition against Novgorod. He defeated a much larger Novgorodian army and forced the city leaders to agree to a harsh treaty, where they had to pay 8,500 rubles and agree never again to shelter his enemies. The treaty also prohibited the Novgorodian Assembly, or Vietch, from making treaties with foreign powers, and dictated that only the Grand Prince's emblem was to appear on Novgorod's coins and official seal. In his last decade in power, Vasily II reasserted Moscow's leadership within north-east Russia, and the power and prestige of the Grand Prince of Moscow grew by leaps and bounds. He eliminated small appanages in the Moscow Principality, and through military campaigns increased his hold over Sizdal and Vyatka. Also, by the end of his reign, Vasily had greatly strengthened the office of the Grand Prince as undisputed head of the ruling family. 
to help ensure a smooth succession after him, Vasily proclaimed his son, Ivan, as co-ruler in 1449, at the age of just nine, who became known as Ivan III. In his will, he bequeathed to Ivan the major part of the territory and revenues of the Grand Principality of Moscow. By tradition, Vasily also bequeathed lands and towns to Ivan's four brothers, which, though far less than the inheritance of Ivan, gave each a degree of independence. The practice of the Grand Prince of Moscow of bequeathing the major portion of the principality was an important factor in the rise of Moscow. Elsewhere in Russia, princes divided their inheritance roughly equally among their children. The result of this was that many princely families ended up with such small territories they became impoverished and were compelled to seek service in Moscow. Moscow's position vis-à-vis the Mongols was also strengthened in this period. The Mongol hordes suffered frequent civil war, and numerous local rulers split to form their own khanates, those of Crimea, Kazan, Astrakhan and Siberia. Thus, when Vasily II made Ivan his co-ruler, unlike his predecessors, he did not feel obliged to request the horde's consent. When Ivan III assumed the throne in 1462, on the death of his father, he was already in a strong position. The ruling class of Moscow and the church leaders were solidly behind him, and the economy was flourishing. Ivan took advantage of the situation, and in his long reign from 1462 to 1505, greatly strengthened and expanded Muscovy, so earning himself the nickname of Ivan the Great. He is sometimes described as a so-called new monarch, alongside his contemporaries in Western Europe, such as Louis XI of France, Henry VII of England, and Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Although the societies of medieval Russia and Western Europe were very different from each other, it is possible to make some comparisons. The new monarchs were all ambitious and successful rulers, who among their achievements managed to limit the power of the feudal aristocracy, centralise their systems of taxation, develop a standing army loyal to the monarch, and encourage some sense of national identity. All this they achieved by acting cautiously, dealing with one problem or situation at a time. Unfortunately, no detailed descriptions or authentic portraits of Ivan III have come down to us, so historians must judge his character by his deeds and by events. Having grown up in the midst of a civil war in which his father eventually triumphed, he must have been acutely aware of the rewards of political power and the dangers of losing it, so grew to trust no one and to act cautiously. Throughout his reign, Ivan worked for the aggrandizement of his office as ruler, but did not personally lead his armies in the field. Robert O'Cromney describes him as ambitious, ruthless, cautious and opportunistic, and as a master politician. Quote, when the weakness of his enemies gave him opportunities, he was quick to exploit them to the utmost. At the same time, he was no knight in shining armour. When possible, Ivan preferred to pursue his ends by political and diplomatic rather than military means, and when warfare was unavoidable, made sure that the odds were overwhelmingly in his favour. Ian Gray, in his book Ivan III and the Unification of Russia, first published in 1964, comes to a similar verdict. Quote, by nature he was immensely ambitious, hungry for wealth and power, but also cautious and practical. He was more able and more far-seeing than his predecessors, and possessed the broad vision of a statesman, combined with extraordinary patience and tenacity. 
Although apparently less barbaric and cruel than many of his contemporaries, Ivan was not an attractive ruler. He was cold, ruthless and calculating, or certainly held loyalty and respect of his subjects, he did not command their love. He was too reserved and suspicious towards everyone, possibly a result of the terrors of his childhood. End quote. Ivan's ambitions were to reunite all Russian Orthodox territories, both those under independent princes and those within the Duchy of Lithuania. Already in the second year of his reign, he compelled the princes of Yaroslav to swear allegiance to him. In the following year, Ivan married his sister Anna to the young prince of Ryazan, which opened the way for him to absorb the principality. And in 1474, he exacted an oath of allegiance from the princes of Rostov. Tver, however, was more difficult to control. His grand prince had recently enjoyed good relations with Moscow, but now, in an attempt to save his independence, he formed an alliance with Grand Duke Casimir of Lithuania. In August 1485, Ivan marched on Tver, captured the city and annexed the principality. There remained now only two independent powers in north-east Russia, Peskov and Novgorod. At the same time, Ivan III needed to deal with the Tatars of the Golden Horde, Kazan and Crimea. Torn by their own rivalries and struggles for power, these Karnates were not strong enough to destroy Muscovy, but they could, by persistent raiding, wear down Russian defences and disrupt trade. And if allied with an independent principality or with Lithuania, they could become a real threat. The Karnate of Kazan, centred on the middle Volga, was the most imminent danger, as it was the closest to Moscow and able to halt the valuable trade with the east. Ivan organised repeated military invasions of Kazan, most notably in 1469, when he forced the city to agree to a truce, which freed him from attacks from the Khanate during the next nine years. The Golden Horde was also a continuing threat from the east, although much reduced in power from its glory days. Khan Ahmed invaded Muscovy in 1480, planning to link up with the forces of Casimir of Lithuania and force tribute to be paid once more from Muscovy. The surviving accounts of the campaign are confusing, but it seems that Russian opposition to his attempts to cross the river Ugra were so strong that Ahmed was forced to retreat without being able to link up with the Lithuanians. Ivan's rejections of the demands for tribute and Ahmed's retreat from the Ugra River are seen by some as the milestone marking the end of the Tatar yoke, which Russia had endured for nearly 250 years. But the Golden Horde was already in decline, and the Grand Princes had, in fact, ceased paying tribute and had refused recognition of the Khan's suzerainty since 1452, during the reign of Vasily II. Ivan III enjoyed much better relations with the Khan of Crimea, mainly Jirai, as both were enemies of the Golden Horde. In 1480, the two men signed a treaty which was an offensive alliance against Lithuania, and defensive alliance against the Golden Horde. Ivan intended to wage war against Lithuania as soon as the time was ripe. In the meantime, Crimean Tatars made regular raids into southern Lithuania, including a particularly devastating attack on Kiev in 1482. These raids provided the Tatars with rich plunder, especially gold taken from churches and princely homes. But the chief purpose of the raids was to capture men, women and children. Taken to Kaffa, a port in southern Crimea, they were sold in the slave markets and shipped to Egypt, Turkey and to countries of the western Mediterranean. These raids benefited Ivan in that they frequently distracted Casimir from attacking Muscovy.
In the midst of his diplomacy with the Tatars and his longer-term plans against Lithuania, Ivan's main ambition in the 1470s was to assert his authority over the two city-states of Peskov and Novgorod, who still retained a degree of independence. By far the largest of these city-states was Novgorod, which, strategically located between the Baltic and central Russia, had grown wealthy on commerce between the west and east. Lord Novgorod, the great as it was respectfully known, was culturally the richest city in Russia. Here were practised fine arts and crafts, and there was a thriving business in the translation and copying of books by the local monks. Despite their wealth, the Novgorodians had never been able to build a military force capable of defending the Republic against aggressive neighbours, Russian principalities in the east and Lithuanians, Swedes and Germans in the west. They therefore had to rely on outside military assistance, traditionally from the Grand Prince of Moscow, although he was forbidden to keep a permanent force in the city. The city employed mercenary troops on occasions and made some attempt to establish a regular army. When required, a large number of men could be gathered into an army, but in practice it was an undisciplined and ill-equipped force, incapable of defending against a more professional army. Understandably, many of the Novgorodians chafed under the harsh settlement terms of 1456. Keen to preserve their independence and trade with the West, there emerged a faction within the city which advocated an alliance with Lithuania. Its leaders were prepared to consider placing the city's archbishop under the jurisdiction of the newly established Metropolitan of Kiev, in place of the Metropolitan of Moscow. After years of growing tension, matters came to a head in February 1471, when Novgorod signed an agreement acknowledging the sovereignty of Casimir of Lithuania, in return for undertaking to respect the rights of the Republic and for protection against Muscovite aggression. Ivan immediately declared war on the city, and his forces easily crushed the hastily assembled army of Novgorod. The peace which the Grand Prince granted was, despite his overwhelming victory, fairly lenient. He annexed only a small part of their northern territories, and imposed a fine of 15,500 rubles, which they could easily afford to pay. As ever, Ivan was acting cautiously and pragmatically, Acting too harshly by destroying the city's traditional institutions may have united the Novgorodians against him. Although moderate, this peace lay heavily upon the Novgorodians. Factional struggles continued to plague the city, and some of its citizens appealed to their overlord, Ivan, for justice. In response, the Grand Prince spent the winter of 1475-76 to in the city, where he listened to complaints and had arrested several leading citizens. His visit probably strengthened the resolve of the faction within the city which welcomed closer ties with Moscow. The end of Novgorod's independence came quickly. In 1477, Ivan seized upon an opportunity when two minor delegates from Novgorod addressed him not as Gospodin, meaning Lord, as then used, but as Gosudar, or Sovereign. He immediately sent envoys to Novgorod to inform the Vets that he would assume full sovereignty and judicial authority in the Republic and its dominions. Novgorod was now in uproar, and many of its leaders again considered alliance with Casimir, although they had earlier sworn not to do so. On the 30th of September, 1477, Ivan declared war and sent his army to besiege the city. Always cautious, Ivan did not attempt to take the city by storm, but planned to starve the people into submission. He did not have to wait long. 
In December, Novgorod capitulated, and soon afterwards her citizens took an oath of allegiance to him as their Gosudar, or sovereign. This time, Ivan was in no mood to compromise. He abolished Novgorod's institutions, including the office of Posadnik, or mayor, and absorbed its lands into his domains. As a symbol of the end of Novgorod's independence, the bell used to summon the Vietch was taken down and sent to Moscow. Bereft of her dominions and completely subjugated, Novgorodians still struggled feebly to recover something of her former freedom and prestige. But Ivan violently put down any sign of revolt. Some rebels were executed, while thousands of others were forcefully relocated elsewhere in Russia. Muscovite gentry and merchants loyal to the Grand Prince were then settled in Novgorod in their places. The Novgorod church ceased to be autonomous, and in addition, important frontier regions in the north and west were settled by Muscovites on service tenure. Novgorod had become a province of Muscovy. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. A slightly special episode because it's episode number 100. Yes, we've reached 100. A big cheer. And also next week we'll reach an anniversary. Next week it will be the podcast's fourth anniversary. Another big cheer. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground over those years. I probably planned in the beginning that the project would last about three years, probably, maybe 100 episodes. But it's still going, still going strong, and still lots to talk about. And those 100 episodes, by the way, don't include several bonus episodes I've done for my Patreon supporters. So what's coming up next? Well, next week would be the second and final part of the Russo-Lithuanian Wars. I'm particularly looking forward to the uh, episodes after that, which is the Battle of Diu, D-I-U, which is uh, all about the Portuguese exploration when they sailed round South Africa and reached India. And then plenty to talk about in the Battle of Pavia, 1525, all about the Italian Wars. And then there's the Battle of Mohac the year after, in 1526, when a huge Ottoman army under Suleiman the Magnificent marches into the centre of Europe. And after that, a battle of Kazan, or the siege of Kazan, in 1552, when I continue the history of Russia. Russia expands into Asia and starts to become a true, powerful empire. And not long after, the Battle of Lepanto, 1571, a naval battle of epic proportions. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be fabulous if you could give me a review on iTunes. Always much appreciated. It's always great to hear from you. You can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. You can follow me on the Facebook page for History of Europe Key Battles. And you can follow me on Twitter at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles. And there's also, I shouldn't forget, the blog, www.historyeurope.net. And nor should I forget patreon.com, where if you're feeling generous and you fancy some extra episodes, then you can join up to become a supporter and help keep the podcast going and going strong.
Lastly, I'd like to wish you a very wonderful Christmas, or just some happy holiday time with your friends and family. Time to chill out, maybe listen to some history podcasts. Whatever you do, have a nice time. So until next time, and the concluding part of the Orusa-Lithuanian Wars, all the best, and goodbye.